Good morning. I have a confession. I've always been a fan of Deion Sanders. I know you probably don't like him, but it's okay. I've never met him. We're not friends. He moved from playing at FSU to the NFL and the MLB. As a coach, he's coached children, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college. Coached in Jackson, Mississippi, Jackson State. Then he was offered the job in Colorado. He went and told them, we coming. And he put a team together and beat last year's playoff hopeful TCU. And he said, we're here. In no way do I want you to think I'm about to compare Dion, prime time, to Jesus. Not what we're here for. There is no comparison between the two. Dion has shaken up the world of sports. Watching this in real time gives us to get an inkling of an idea of the kind of impact Jesus had on his world that he made. Dion is no savior. He might have resurrected a dead football program, but what is that? in the scope of eternity. When the time was right, after years of telling the world that his son was coming, Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. At his baptism, the father spoke as he came out of the water. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's here. Jesus, not just his legacy, endures forever. Jesus is eternal. There is no hall of fame for Jesus. Because there is no other Jesus. He defies comparison. Dion is a showboat. He's won four, lost two. But Boulder, Colorado... They know he's not hard to find. Dion does Dion stuff. The glasses, the hat. He's loud, proud, confident, arrogant, brash. Dion is human. Jesus is God. Would you stand with me as we look together in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. We'll start reading with verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Soon afterwards, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped. And he said, Young man, I tell you, get up. The dead men sat up and began to speak. 
and Jesus gave him to his mother, then fear came over everyone. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. You can be seated. In this passage, we see two contrasting crowds. They are as different from each other as Jesus is from Dion. One crowd is behind Jesus. One crowd is behind the widow of Nain. I'd like for us to see how these crowds were formed, how the crowds became crowds. For Jesus' crowd, we look back to Luke chapter 6. Jesus had just finished the Sermon on the Plain. He chatted up some locals. We moved to chapter 7. He enters Capernaum. Apparently, a crowd of seekers, followers, disciples were following Jesus. How many, you ask? Good question. 176. I don't know. It doesn't say. Verse 9 just says crowd. Meanwhile, in Capernaum, a centurion, military guy, like a captain in our system, he would have overseen 100-ish soldiers, and he had a sick servant. I don't know about the servant. I think male, no guess about the age, older than young. I don't know. Probably doesn't matter. The centurion, the captain, grabs some locals and asks about Jesus coming to his house to heal his servant, to save the servant's life. The locals found Jesus and gave a rave review of the captain. He's not like the rest of them. He's a good one. He's given to the temple. You, you know. It would be good if Jesus could help him. So Jesus agrees. And he starts off to the guy's house. And apparently, word got to the captain. He's coming. And the captain either, maybe he wasn't ready for a visit. Or maybe he didn't feel worthy to have Jesus visit in his house. So he sent his friends to say to Jesus, the captain says, you don't even have to come to his house. He knows what it's like to have people under you. He is also a man of authority. So just say the words, exercise your authority over sickness. And he knows the servant will be healed. In verse 9, Jesus says that Jesus looked at the crowd and said, hey, I'll tell you this. I have not seen faith this great, even in all of Israel. Verse 10 tells us that when the captain's friends returned to the captain's house, the servant was healed. What it doesn't tell us is, did the crowd 
follow the friends to the captain's house? I don't know. Did the crowd know the outcome of the sick servant? I don't know. Did the crowd get bigger? Is this just Jesus being Jesus and they assumed healing? Or did they just have enough faith to believe that at Jesus' word the servant would be healed? I don't know. But I know this. In verse 11, when Jesus gets to the town called Nain, get ready. It tells us not that a crowd was following but a large crowd was following him. Jesus is leading his followers toward the village of Nain. Hangers on, excited by the recent miracle, following Jesus. Nain is a 30-mile arduous hike uphill. It's a climb from Capernaum. And it's basically a path on the way to nowhere. Or was it? Inside the village, there is another crowd. We should see why this crowd was formed. This crowd is trudging to the cemetery. How many are there in this crowd? 174. I don't know. The crowd is somber. They had not heard Jesus' message on the plain. They did not hear Jesus say, blessed are you who are poor or hungry or when people exclude you or insult you or slander your name for evil because of me. They did not hear Jesus say, blessed are you who weep because you will laugh. They were marching, not to Zion, but to the graveyard. There wasn't laughter and chatter piercing the air, but wails of grief, shuffling feet, kicking up dust. Maybe a somber dirge. It was sad. They were there. They were a crowd because a woman had lost her son. I don't know how old she was. I don't know how old the dead man was. It seems he could have been anywhere between ages 13 and 40. When Jesus spoke to the dead man, he used the Greek word neoniskos, which could be anyone from age 13 to 40. We can assume then even if he was a teen, he would have been helpful to the mother. But he's gone. When a widow lost her only son in first century Israel, she wasn't only left with grief. She was left destitute. No way to provide. No hope for a future. You're going to see in a minute, Jesus shows great compassion for a woman who had lost everything. This woman, for all practical purposes, was alive. She was leading a crowd. But she probably wondered why. 
Why was she still there? Her husband was dead. Her son was dead. Was there any hope for her? Would she ever laugh again? In that male-dominated world of the first century, with no male to provide for her, the widow of Nain was facing social, spiritual, and financial catastrophe. All she had to look forward to was a future with no hope. There was no mention of any other children. There possibly could have been a girl or two, but probably not. According to custom, the grieving woman who was husbandless, the widow, and now childless, was the head of the funeral procession. Behind her, mourners carried the funeral buyer of her only son. As they made their way to the graveyard, the woman's neighbors would join the growing group. She was a dead woman walking, alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. Hope had died with her son, resulting in two dead people rather than just one. So when the crowds encountered one another, exuberant hope met extreme hopelessness. I like to plan hiking trips. I like to plan hikes for me. I plan hikes for other people. One weekend a few years ago, three different people contacted me for the same weekend, this time of year, you know, when it's cool and beautiful. They wanted to hike in a specific section all near each other. They asked me to plan a route, plot it on a map, talk about elevation, speed, spending the night, water. So I did. And I realized that the three groups, if things worked out, could intersect. And I thought if I could pull that off, that would make me a world caliber trip planner. So I went to work. This group had this, this group had this, this group had this, and for this to happen, this had to happen, and it's, it wasn't gonna happen. It did. When they came back, we were chatting about their trip. Thank you for, map was great, your water, good. You're not gonna believe who I saw. So I told them, let me get that shocked look. All three groups had intersected at some point. To get all their paths to cross on different trails is extremely unlikely. It didn't happen by chance. Those involved didn't even know what was happening. To them, it was complete coincidence. Jesus' encounter with the widow of name was not coincidence. It didn't just happen. Jesus left for this on the way to nowhere village before the funeral procession even began. The widow's son was probably alive when Jesus began his journey. You see, in those days shortly after death, they would prepare the body for burial. To Day, when we pass, there's usually the washing, maybe embalming. 
In Jesus' day, they would wash the body, anoint it with expensive perfumes like nar and myrrh and aloes. aloes. They wrapped the body in a shroud. They would wrap the face, cover it with a special cloth, hands and feet with strips of cloth. This happened quickly because they were buried within hours after their death. And this was mainly because of the hot climate. It would hasten decay. Back then, they didn't have access to the embalming chemicals we do today. So very quickly after a death, family, friends, and neighbors, they came to comfort the family and say their goodbyes. There wasn't time to make a casserole. I don't know what they ate. But they would come by. So sorry. It was easier for them to gather because they lived closer to each other than we do today. You probably remember the story of Jairus. Went to Jesus, my little girl's dying. Could you come and do something? And Jesus went. While they were going to his house, somebody said, don't, don't bother him anymore. It's, it's too late. Jesus passed. Jesus said, let's go anyway. And you'll remember when they got there. If you don't know, you think, well, how crazy is this? The mourners were already there. They were already there because they were going to wash and prep and bury. These friends came to mourn with the lady, the widow from Nain, to say their last goodbyes. And the person who died was put on a bier, coffin, and carried to the gravesite. The body was carried by loved ones. It was a sign of affection and love to carry. As they made their way to the tomb, the women would wail. And I don't know, they would throw dust in their hair. That's what they did. A crowd of friends, extended family, neighbors would have been in this crowd on the way to the tomb. Just as the ancient mourners did, we have our version of a funeral procession. We have pallbearers that carry the casket from the hearse to the grave and then families travel. We go to the graveside with the family. It's a symbol of support, solidarity for the grieving family. The crowd that was formed in this first century funeral procession was formed by the people in the town. In our culture, if you're driving along and you see a funeral, you know you're supposed to pull over. Most people don't. Unless there's a policeman in front, maybe then you'll pull over till he goes by. But it used to be, old folks you know, used to pull over Jewish custom, if you came upon a funeral procession, you were obligated to join it. Don't care what you're doing. Hop in. Be a part of the, of the crowd. The crowd that Luke, by the way, called a large crowd. So this widow with her dead son and this large crowd, same word used to describe Jesus' crowd, walking, weeping, mourning, 
going to the funeral. It was not fun. There weren't funny stories going around because this widow's life was basically over in a Jewish funeral. There was a burial procession because by law, they had to be buried outside the city. So you had to go through the city to get out of the gate to go to where you were going to bury. Rather than come through in a procession, the person that died was not, it was not in a coffin like we have today, but an open buyer. It's a, a couch-like structure. It's open. You can see the body, and it would be carried by friends to the burial plot. And again, this is usually within 24 hours. As they got to the gate of the city, we have the meeting of the two crowds, Jesus and the party, the widow and her family, friends, and neighbors. It's a tremendous contrast between the two. Jesus and his disciples were rejoicing over the blessing of the Lord that they had seen, the healing. The widow and her friends were lamenting the death of her only son. Jesus was heading for the city. The mourners were heading for the cemetery. Jesus arrived the right place at the right time so he could meet this desperate woman and what would have been her moment of most profound need. You can imagine a, a tear-stained face, slumped shoulders. Her mouth didn't need to speak. Her body said it all. In verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said, don't cry. I was preparing this. That caught me. Because I know, you know, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the Bible gives us pictures of both. But this is just another little part of Jesus' humanity. Jesus had the senses. He saw. Sight is a sense. So when I read that, I got up and just kind of made a loop. Thinking, what were the other senses of Jesus? Do we know? Is it in there? There's not a passage that said, and Jesus had five senses. He could see, hear, taste, touch. So I went first to the story of blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road, crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd, be quiet, shut up. Don't bother him. What did he do? Cried out all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, bring him to me. He heard him, hearing, since. On the way to Jairus' house, he's walking through a crowd. It's a busy crowd. Belk on Black Friday. And stops and says, Who touched me? Touch, since. Are you with me? You should be letting your brain go right now. What, what others? On the cross, one of the seven last words, Jesus said, I thirst, taste. Just before Lazarus was raised from the dead, his sister said, if you roll that stone away, 
He stinketh. Smell. For those of you that need seven senses, because there's a group, seven, not five. I'm old. I go with five. But if you need seven, let's just go to walk on water. Balance and movement. I'm telling you, Jesus, fully, completely, totally God. Fully, totally, completely human. Luke chose his words with care. Back in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said, don't cry. Jesus didn't just see the woman, he had compassion on her. His heart went out to her. This word is only used three times by Luke in his writings. One of those times is the picture of the prodigal son. And when the father saw him, he had compassion on him. Then it's used in the story of the Good Samaritan. When the Samaritan saw the man who had been beaten and left, he had compassion on him. And then right here, the only three times he sees her and he has compassion on her. And get ready. Because it says he reached out and hugged her and said, I'm sorry for your loss. It does not say that. That's what we would have done. Come here. I'm so sorry. It's not the way it happened. When Jesus looked, he had compassion. I like that word. It means with feeling. When we want to be compassionate, when we want to sound compassionate, we say, I feel your pain. We may not, but we, it's what we say. True compassion. True compassion is when you enter another person's pain. Luke calls Jesus Lord. But he also calls him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. If you're acquainted with grief, you can have compassion. He saw this woman. He saw her heartbreak. Surely she was on the rim of despair. Her tears flowing down her cheeks. And he was not unfeeling. He felt it in his soul. You can't read this without understanding that he saw her. Immediately had compassion. And then he spoke. She may have needed a hug. But words are faster than motions. Speed of sound. 750 miles an hour. At 750 miles an hour, he looked at her and said, don't cry. We read this and we feel the need to process it. Because we have words on a page. We might imagine her thinking, what? This man comes out of nowhere with this big crowd. He walks up to me and he tells me to stop crying. Who does he think he is? Of course I'm crying. My heart is broken. My husband is dead and so is my son. Don't you wish you could have been there to hear the tone? To see Jesus' face 
when he said to her, stop weeping. Maybe you process it this way. <laughs> He's a not unmarried man. He has no children. He's not a mother. He's not a woman. There's no way he gets it. Don't cry. He's an idiot. Well, you'd be wrong, but you could think it. Because he saw her, not just looked at her. He saw her with those penetrating eyes. And when he looked at her and he saw her, he looked with compassion. The man who could not understand, understood. There's a hint in the very sound of his voice that he was not rebuking her for a public display of grief. He wasn't telling her, big girls don't cry. There was something tender, something comforting, something that gave a sense of power over grief, over mourning, when Jesus said to her, don't cry. He can say it. He knows it's about to happen. Next, Jesus, being Jesus, did what no self-respecting Jewish man should ever do. He touched the open buyer, the casket, the coffin, the holder of the dead man. Jewish people don't touch dead things. It's one of the reasons why they wash the body ready for burial. Touching dead things put you in a risk of being impure because it was forbidden for Jews in the ancient world to touch the dead. Jesus, however, had authority over death. He just proved he had authority over sickness when he said, your servant is healed. Remember, it was the centurion that said, just say the word and my servant will be healed. All Jesus had to do to the dead man was say the words, get up, come forth. But Jesus looked away from the widow and he walked toward her son and he touched the coffin. When he touched it, he was violating the purity laws and everyone stopped. It was one of those moments. No one did that. Contact with the dead body communicated the worst form of impurity. Good thing they were outside. Had they been inside, the pallbearers would have sucked all the air out of the room. <gasps> there was that second between almost and touching. This time, when the Lord spoke, it wasn't to the pallbearers. It wasn't to the mother. It was to the young man who was dead. He said, young man, I'm telling you, you can get up. It doesn't tell us how much time there was between the touch and the talk and the movement. And we're not in first century Israel. We've all seen dead people. And if you're at the funeral and the body gets up, somebody's screaming. 
they probably dropped the buyer on the ground. Somebody was running because the dead man doesn't get up. Because the dead man is supposed to be dead. Jesus just said it like he was talking. Go ahead and get up. He did. Rather than the dead guy transferring uncleanliness to Jesus, Jesus transmitted life to the corpse. He restored both the son and the mother to life, to hope, showing God's heart for the helpless and the hopeless. Jesus turned tears of pain into tears of joy. I can't prove this. And I hope I remember to ask, one day when we pass in glory, this widow. I, I believe it was at this exact moment that Jesus put fun in the funeral. Because if your child is dead and then he's not, and you've been crying for who knows how long, you're going to laugh. Because <laughs> you can't explain it. I believe the widow laughed. Because in the sermon on the plain, when Jesus told his group and the others that were there, blessed are you who weep now. Because you will laugh. Our text ends with verses 16 and 17. Then fear came over everyone. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Jesus raising back to life the widow's son reminded those who were watching and us of Elijah and Elisha who had also raised the dead. Luke's approach in Relating this story to this audience would have guaranteed they made that connection. The phrase, Jesus gave him back to his mother, it's identical to the words in the story of Elijah's raiding, raising the widow of Zarephath, his only son. One of my favorite Pastor Davin sermons. Have you ever been to Zarephath? I could have asked today, have you ever been to Nain? It's the same teaching. When the masses saw the miracle, they praised God and they held Jesus as being a great prophet. They were just saying, he's here. He's no longer coming. He's here. I'd like to finish by reminding you that you're in a crowd. In Matthew, it's Jesus that tells us to enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Because, beware of the gate for large crowds. It's wide, like the road to Capernaum. But it leads to destruction. 
to the graveyard. You'll find big crowds, like in Boulder, on game day. Jesus says we should enter the narrow gate. And he tells us it's going to be different, tougher than an arduous 30-mile climb to name. But it leads to life. It's sad that not everyone will find it. So which group are you following? Is your group following Jesus and the road to life? Are you in the group that's heading to death? Today I point you to Jesus. Fully God. Fully man. Able to see you. The real you. Able to have compassion on you because he's been you. And he says today, I want you to follow me because he has defeated death so that you can have life. Jesus is not loud or proud or arrogant or brash. He's God among us. And he's asking us today to follow him. Will you follow him? Father God, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for Luke's writing in these two crowds, reminding us today that we're in a crowd. We're following somebody. Father, help us to jump crowds today and be in the one that you're leading. Father, I pray that you take your word, plant it in our heart, let it take root. Change us today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.